who's 2 Kings chapter 4. It'll be on your outline as well. But I want you to reflect back. Do you remember Cliff Notes? Teachers, cover your ears right now, okay? Because this is just awkward for you. But when I was growing up, there were these things called Cliff Notes. And what Cliff Notes were, they were these pretty little yellow booklets. And for students, never me. Don't worry, it was never me, teachers, okay? But students, if they didn't want to read or lacked motivation or didn't understand those big, thick, 400-page books, well, Cliff Notes were a gift from heaven that took a 400-page book and narrowed it down to about 14 pages, and students could write a paper based on that. What we didn't know is students as teachers also had copies of Cliff Notes and knew when you only read the Cliff Notes. But what I want to do today as we start is I want to give you the cliff note version of our message today before we even get into anything else. Just in case you tune out, I don't want you to miss the whole point. So here is the cliff note version of our time together today, and it's simply this. God has given you everything you need to do everything he has called you to do. Let me say that again. God has given you everything you need to do everything he has called you to do. Now notice something here. I didn't say it in a past tense, that God gave you everything. No, no, no. God has given you. It's present tense. And it's not a future tense that God will give you. No, God has given you everything you need today to do everything that God has called you to do today. So with that in mind, will you follow along with me in 2 Kings chapter 4? And if you're using one of our pew Bibles, I'm going to tell you in advance that it there will be a couple words that don't make sense because today I chose to use the NIV version. Remember, we're having a lot of fun while Pastor Brad's gone, right? Um, but more so was because the ESV version uses a word to describe jars as vessels. And I don't know about you, but I don't go and pick up any vessels anywhere. I call them jars. And so I wanted to use language that we typically use in our day-to-day lives. So uh, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. Follow along if you could. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he served the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour out into all of the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him, and afterwards she shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go, Sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Although scripture doesn't give us this woman's name, Jewish tradition says that this woman was most likely the prophet Obadiah's wife. The same Jewish tradition says that Obadiah probably took care of the the needs for up to 50 other prophets, providing them protection and provision which most likely is the reason why she was stuck with this debt after his death. So often when we look at situations in other people's lives, we often just jump to the conclusion that they got there as a result of their own bad decisions. 
But sometimes when we step out in faith, sometimes when we go to help other people, it actually will affect us personally as well. And with this widow in the text this morning, that's exactly what might have happened to her. The prophet Obadiah might have stepped out in faith thinking that he would have enough time to be able to repay his debts. But as we all know, we don't know how many days we have on this earth, and we should view every day that God gives us as an absolute gift from him. His widow most likely would have been in her mid to late 30s. At, the, at this point, she's a single mother with two sons. In the day and age when a woman was to lose her husband, she endured great hardship both economically and culturally. For widows in this day, when they were widows, had literally no standing. So women, widows in particular, they had no way of making a living. With no standing and no husband to be their backing, they couldn't go out and even have a job to provide a living on their own. So this widow had nowhere else to turn. She had no other options on the table. She was desperate, and she was in desperate fear of losing her two sons. And when we look at this from a modern American perspective, the idea of losing our children because of our debt seems so foreign to us. For when Americans decide that they're not going to repay their debt commitments, they often just allow it to go into fault. They go and file bankruptcy, or they merely just wash their hands of it and walk away. There really aren't that harsh of consequences. But in this day, in Elisha's day, if someone was to not repay their debts, their sons could be taken as slaves up until the year of Jubilee to repay that debt. There's something also, something significant here in verse 1 that I don't want to miss today. It's the way that Scripture records Elisha's life. If you go back just one chapter, you can read about how Elisha was ministering to kings. So Elisha is ministering to kings, and then right away we see him ministering to those with no standing, to a widow. And notice that Elijah treats them the exact same way. And Elisha here in the text is a perfect example of who our God is. Our God is available to kings and to widows. God's attention and love is the exact same whether one has all kinds of money and title and prestige or whether one is broke and homeless. Our God treats them and views them the exact same. And I don't know about you, but I just, as I was studying this, God just struck my heart that there's somebody that needs to hear this today. That you feel like the God that created the heavens and the earth is so big and so busy that he doesn't have time to care about the littlest details of your life. So you've bought the lie that maybe you should just hold back. And the only things that you turn over to God are when you're in crisis or those major lifetime moments. Maybe that's come about as a result of your father or your mother or someone in your life being just so busy they didn't have time to care. But let me tell you, the God that created the heavens and the earth literally breathed life into you and me. He literally numbered every hair that you have on your head and some of you that don't have any at all. He knows every detail of your life. And he wants to be so intimately involved in your life, whether it's significant or insignificant. In his eyes, it's the exact same, and he cares. And Elisha says to the widow, listen, after she describes how dire her situation is, uh, Elisha responds to her by saying this. He says, what 
can I do to help you? Imagine the thought bubbles that were popping up in her mind. Imagine the strain that she was going through. She had to have been at her end of herself in that moment, and she had to have been thinking, I'm broke. I'm desperate. I'm about to lose my sons. I'll do anything. Just help me. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there in your life where you're so desperate? Are you there now? Where you don't know what else to do? Where you have more answers than you have questions? And where you have no answers, you feel like you have no peace. And because you have no peace, you struggle with faith. And because you have no faith, you have no hope. And being hopeless is a terrible place to be. Elisha follows up that first question with another question. And he asks her, he says, tell me, what do you have in your home? Don't miss her response here. She says, your servant has nothing at all except for a small jar of olive oil. In her desperation, in her anguish, in her stress, she couldn't see anything of value in her life. Her initial response was, I have nothing at all. How often are we like that widow? Maybe not to that same degree, but how often do we feel like we have nothing at all? I mean, when was the last time you opened up your refrigerator and you look in there and you say, I have nothing to eat, right? Come on, I'm not the only one that did that. Some of you did it this morning. What about this? You're sitting on your couch and you're going, click, click. Click, 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 click. And you go through 280 channels and you say, I have nothing to watch. Or what about this one? It's the stereotypical one, but it's not just ladies that deal with it. It's men as well. Where you open up your closet doors or you walk in there and you see you have enough clothes to clothe an African village. But what do you say? I have nothing to wear. Nothing to wear. See, here's the thing. When we have blinders on, we struggle to see what is plainly right in front of us. And the problem for this widow was that she was blinded by her overwhelming need. She was blinded by her desperation, by her situation. All that she could see was what she didn't have. She said, I have nothing, nothing at all except for this small little jar of olive oil. She thought it was so insignificant. She thought it was so small. She thought it mattered so little that, oh yeah, I have that too. But prophet, man of God, all I have is nothing at all. You have to understand that oil in her day, olive oil like this, would have been useful and had some value. Oil would be used to cook. It would be used for anointing. It would be used as a moisturizer. It would be used as a fuel for a lamp. It had so many different purposes. Well, she said she had nothing at all. Her oil had some value. It was worth something. So let me ask you, how often do you like the widow in the text this morning? Where you can clearly see your troubles, but you have difficulty seeing your blessings. Where we can see all that we don't have, even though we have so much. Ask someone if they have enough money and they might say, you know what? If I could make $50,000 of a year, oh my goodness, 
That would be absolutely amazing. Until you make it. And then all of a sudden, $50,000 isn't quite enough. For that person, all of a sudden, it becomes $75,000 a year. Until they make it. And once again, it's not quite enough. For them, it moves up to that 100000 six-figure income. Woo, I've made it. Until you make it. Then it doesn't seem like it's quite enough. See, as we look at the text today, as we look at our time together, it's not just a financial thing. There's so many ways that we miss the provision and blessing of God because we get so focused in on what we don't have rather than what we do have. Which if you have your outline this morning, if you're taking notes, my first fill-in that I have for you is that all God needs is what you have. All God needs is what you have. When we think about what we, when we think we don't have enough, God's response is, I have given you everything you need to do everything I have called you to do. But often in our lowest times, in our times of desperation and distress, our eyes are blinded by the exact things that God wants to use to be able to do a miracle in our lives and to be able to work in and through us. For in the text, All the widow could see was what she didn't have. And all God wanted to show her was he was about to do a miracle with the one thing that she thought wasn't even worth mentioning. Now looking at the text, we can easily see the provision or the financial aspect of this text. But when you look at scripture, you look and you can see time and time again how oil is used to describe the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. It represented God's empowerment, God's gifting, God's equipping. So this morning, uh, even while I'm sharing about oil, it can represent something more than just needing something to go and sell. The oil for you can represent your heart. The oil can represent the gifts that God has given you, the people that God has put in your life, the passions and the ideas that he has birthed deep into your heart that he wants to grow and see flourish in your life. And if I were your enemy, and I knew that I couldn't take away those gifts, but I wanted to take away from God's best, you know what I would do? I would get you to believe that your oil is so little, that it's so insignificant that it's not even worth using. And that's exactly what our spiritual enemy does. He goes one person at a time, and he spews these little teeny lies to get people to believe that their oil, that their gifts aren't good enough. He gets you to believe that your time, your oil, isn't worthwhile to use to serve others, but rather to serve yourself. He gets people to believe because of your choices or the choices of others that your oil is now tainted. And as a result of it being tainted, it's not good enough to be able to be used by God. There's some of you that you've been coming here for months, years, potentially even decades. And you've stayed in the same place spiritually because you believe that you don't have enough to be able to be used by God. You've bought the lie that that little bit of oil that God has entrusted you with is better to be left on the shelf where it's safe than to be used to pour out into other people's lives. And when you think about the gifts that God has given you, you've robbed them of their significance and it's allowed, it's kept you from being significant in God's hands. 
where you haven't stretched that faith muscle in so long that it's become so rigid and out of touch that you've bought the lie that you have nothing to offer. Friend, your oil is a gift from God. The oil of your time is a gift from God. The oil of your personality is a gift from God. The oil of your season of life is a gift from God. The oil of your hands are a gift from God. The oil of your experience is both good and bad are a gift from God. The oil of your story that God is writing in and through you is a gift from from God in every drip of oil that God has given you, every drip of oil that God has poured into your life is enough to do everything that God has called you to do. But yet too often, too often we look at our pantry of our lives. Too often we look at how we view ourselves and we project that same view, completely 180 degree difference, as we view the pantry of other people's lives. We live in a culture that compares. We compare our behind the scenes with someone else's highlight reels. And there's no other way, no worse way to see that than if you spend time on Distractagram or fake book. It's amazing how people put out this reality that's so far from their truth. Can I help you today? If you find yourself caught in that comparison trap as you go on those social media places, can I give you the solution? It's absolutely earth-changing. You ready? Cancel your account. Like, I know that you might affect Facebook's stock. We don't care. We're not living for this world. We're living for the next world for eternity. And the best thing that you can do if you find yourself always going on Facebook or Distractagram, cancel your account. Delete the app. If you want to thrive in this life, don't get caught in the comparison trap. And let me tell you from so many people I've talked to, when you stop going on there, it's amazing how much more time you'll have on your hands. Next time. Next time you want to compare your oil with someone else's oil, remember this. You're not going to be held accountable for the way someone else uses their oil. You're going to be held accountable for the way that you use your oil. See, it's not the amount of oil that determines how God's going to use us. It's not how smart we are. It's not how much money we have or influence we possess. It's not even how we view ourselves or our perceived self-worth. When God calls us, when he chooses us, We need to have the faith to believe that God has given us everything that we need to do everything he has called us to do. I'm going to say that again because based on your blank faces, I think I'm surrounded by a bunch of church people who live their faith out every single day in a perfect way. And I'm the only person here that struggles with faith. So let me say it once more for the other people that are real today. Because we're a group of imperfect people worshiping a perfect God. And we all struggle in different ways in our lives. And this idea of big faith is awkward and it doesn't make sense to us because we're scared. But if God calls us, if God calls us to make a difference in someone else's life, when God calls us to use the oil that he has planted deep within us, he has given us everything we need to do everything that God has called us to do. For as the New Testament says, faith as small as a mustard seed can say to that mountain move and what happens with that mountain it gets up and moves 
faith in the hands of our God is unstoppable. You'll never know how much God will meet you in your faith until you take a step of faith. That's my second point for you today. You'll never know how God will meet you in your faith until you take a step of faith. That's the same idea that I shared last week. And it's the exact same idea that I'm going to share next week as well. For Elisha models for us a big type of faith. Elisha's faith was so big that when he take that step of faith, he didn't understand all that God was going to do. When he burned the plow and the oxen, he got rid of plan B and he said, God, I don't understand this all, but I'm not going back to that. I'm going to trust that you're calling me to something greater than what I've been doing today. And even bigger, when he asked for that double portion of faith, God met him exactly where he was at. And in each of those instances, we saw that when Elisha took a step of faith, God met him there. Look at verse 3. It says, then Elisha said, go around and ask your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. The instructions were so simple, but yet the implications of them were so significant. Go borrow some jars from everyone you know. Go ask people, hey, William, can I borrow a jar? Hey, can I borrow a jar? Can I collect your jars? And he says, don't just borrow a few. I mean, that seems so simple, right? Like if you're making cookies and you're missing an egg, you have no problem going next door. Can I borrow an egg? I won't give it back to you, but can I have it? And, and yet, when you think about it, what, it, what it must have been like for this widow, what if people ask me what I need it for? What am I going to say when I'm walking around with all these jars stacked up? What are my neighbors going to think of me? What am I going to tell them that I'm doing with 19 jars? And we think it's so funny because as, as just Americans and just who we are, it's, it's easy for us to go next door and, and ask our neighbors for a jar. But yet it's so hard for us to go and share our faith with them. It's easy to go ask them for a vessel that can be broken and will be recycled one day. But it's so hard for us to step out and share with them something that will last for eternity. Why is that? Do we lack faith? Do we not know what to say? Are we afraid of their rejection? Look, this is super convicting to me as well. Do we not believe that God will meet us in our step of faith? I think if we were all to take a step back, if we were just to be real, let down that mask of being a perfect Christian, then we would have to acknowledge that not only is a lack of faith, it's also in a culture that values self so much. We believe that we can handle everything by ourselves, for ourselves, because by having to think beyond ourselves, we would actually have to give of ourselves. That's pride. When we think that we can handle everything in our lives all by ourselves, for ourselves, because thinking beyond ourselves would actually mean we have to think of someone else, because the only person we actually like to think about is ourselves. So for this widow, where was her step of faith in the text this morning? Was it when she went to the man of God and told her her situation? Was it when she went door to door and asked for jars? Was it when she first started pouring? Where was her faith? Her faith was every step of the way. 
And in each instance, her God met her exactly where she was to take her where he wanted her to go. And in the same way, for us to take big steps of faith, it doesn't always happen as one giant leap. Often it happens with one decision, one step, one moment, one day at a time. Look at the last part of verse 3. He says this, he says, ask your neighbors for empty jars. But then what does it say? He says, don't ask for just a few. See, that was Elisha modeling for this widow his big faith in action. He's saying, don't scrimp on the jars. Don't just ask for one or two jars. Go and have a mighty faith. Elisha was imploring imploring her to have a big type of faith. He's saying, don't limit and don't box in God. And nothing frustrates me more than when people try to box in God and we're all guilty of it. We try to put a time schedule on God, but God created time. His timing is not our timing. If our service needs to go just a little bit longer than you're comfortable with and you might be late for Chipotle today, let me tell you that I would rather operate on God's timing than your stomach's timing or Chipotle's call on your life. Or what about this? I don't know about you, but if God is ministering someone else's life, I would rather have to wait five or ten minutes and be inconvenienced than to be on the opposite side of where God is working in someone's heart and someone's life. Or what about prayer? We so often want to box God in in prayer and say, you know what, I just need to have this short little powerless prayer because I don't want to make someone uncomfortable as we do true business. And if I'm dealing with something in my life, I don't want your canned little Holy Spiritless prayer. I want a Holy Spirit-led prayer that has power in it that God is working as we unite in the Spirit of God. We'll cover this a little bit more next week. But remember, you don't want to miss next week. But what about when we try to intellectualize or try to rationalize who our God is based on our limited faith and, as we like to say, our great intellect? And I'm not saying spiritual intellect because so many of us are struggling in that area. I'm talking about our earthly wisdom that we as Americans have. And as a result of having this amazing wisdom that we got off of Google and YouTube, and our faith that's so small, we've put God in this little teeny wincy box that we're comfortable with, but our God can't be boxed in. Our God is so much bigger than our intellect can ever understand. And I truly believe that when we get on the other side of heaven, we are going to be absolutely floored at the absolute feast that God had for us, but that we were down on the ground scrimping for the little crumbs because we lacked faith and because we were so smart. Elisha said, don't just go for a few. Look at verse 4. He says, then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into the jars, and as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him. She shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. There's something so powerful here at the beginning of verse 4. Why close the door? Why would Elisha ask her to close the door? God was going to meet her deepest need in the secret place where no one else was going to see. Now, don't get me wrong, our God can and does work miracles in public where other people see. But other times, God works in that secret place where we pour ourselves out to him and he pours himself into us. When was the last time you were in that secret place? 
Have you had a hard time hearing that still, soft voice of God? Have you been so wrapped up in what our world has to offer that you can't hear it? Well, maybe you need to remove yourself. Maybe you need to get into that sacred place so that God can pour himself out into you. Are you feeling overwhelmed? Are you stressed? Are you burdened? When was the last time that you removed yourself and went to that secret place and laid all of those burdens, all those stresses at the foot of the cross and allowed God to handle them rather than you handling them on your own shoulders? Or are you so wrapped up in praying for more? More for me. More finance. More opportunity. More of whatever it is that you've missed the reminder that God has already given you everything that you need to do everything that he has called you to do. And it's in that secret place, behind the closed doors that God is pouring into you, preparing you to be able to minister today, tomorrow, and for weeks and months ahead. And it's in that secret place, behind closed doors, that the widow's faith was put to the ultimate test. For the oil flows only when it's poured. Imagine what it must have been like for her when she got that first jar. And I believe that she had a a bigger face, so she got the big one. But imagine what it must have been like for her when she first took that lid off and she was ready to hold God to his promise. Would it flow? Would it be bigger than this? Would it actually fill this jar? Would, it actually, would God do what he said he would do? And that's where my next point for you is this. Is she learned when she took that step of faith, that oil becomes more when it's poured. Faith becomes more when it's poured. See, you can pray for oil. You can cry over your oil. You can wish for oil. But until it is poured, it will stay in that small little jar. And if the enemy can't take your oil, he'll get you to stop pouring. And I believe that some of you that are here today have stopped pouring. You got your heart broken, and as a result of a broken heart, you stopped pouring yourself out. You used to be an encourager, but because you got discouraged, you said, you know what, I'm not going to pour myself out on anyone anymore. But the more that you pour, the more that it flows. The more that you pull the oil of your life into other people's lives, the more that it will pour. But we've bought the lie that you can only pour when you get more. But God's ways are completely different. In his ways, it gets more as you pour. It's so counterintuitive. It doesn't even make sense that God would pour, ask us, he would call us to pour something that we don't have enough of anyways. But that, my friend, is big faith in action. Let me ask you, is it easier to overcome discouragement by going and cuddling on your bed and crying in your own self-pity? Or is it easier to overcome discouragement that even in your discouragement, by pouring yourself out and being an encourager to other people, is it easier to hold on to your oil or to pour it out in others. The more you pour, the more it flows. That, my friend, is big faith in action. I love how our passage concludes this morning. It says this. It says, when the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, 
There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and she told the man of God. And he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. I love how God would provide the exact amount of oil down to the last drop to match the measure of faith she had and the number of jars that she had collected. Imagine what it must have looked like in that house with the door closed as they went through a bu- from a bunch of empty jars to a bunch of jars that were full to the brim down to the last drop. She stepped out in faith and God met her exactly where she was in her faith. The last thought that I want to leave with you today is not a feeling on your outline, but I believe it's worth writing down. And it's this, it comes out of verse 7. When the widow went back to Elisha and told him what God had done, he instructed her to go and sell the oil, pay her debts, and live what's on left. And here's what he said. He said, don't shelve it, use it. Don't shelve it, lose it. And I think that there's some people today that have been shelving their oil for whatever reason. And God is calling you today, Christian, to step in big faith and use the oil. I think of the woman who went to the feet of Jesus. She had that expensive jar of perfume or oil. And she poured it all over Jesus. And the people that were there, some of them could not believe the waste. They couldn't believe that she would pour something so expensive in that situation. Where those that some of them were there thought that was a waste, she called it worship. It's not a waste of your oil. No matter how big your jar is, by keeping it put away, you're wasting the potential. You're wasting what God has planted in you. God is calling you to take it off the shelf, to pour it. And when you pour more, God will meet you exactly where you're at. Because when it's poured, it becomes more. And God is calling every single one of us First Baptists to have big faith. To pour, to pour, to pour, to pour, and to pour some more. Will you join me in prayer this morning? Father, that is simply my prayer. That every single one of us that are gathered here this morning would have the faith. Would have the faith, God, to hold you to your promises that you have given us everything that we need to do everything that you have called us to do. And God, when we take that step of faith, we know that you will meet us there. And God, for those people that are sitting here today and they're still questioning it, God, I pray that you will nudge them. I pray that you will make them uncomfortable in such a way that you will grow their faith. God, for those people that are here today that can so resonate with the widow's stress that they're not sure how they're going to be able to provide for their family. They're not sure how, how, how they're going to have food. God, I know without a shadow of a doubt, when we press into you, that you provide for every one of our needs. It might not be every one of our wants, but it's every one of our needs. And God, as I, I think about every single one of us, God, we are a group of imperfect people that are here to worship you, a perfect God. And God, in your perfection, you would gift us. You would ride into our hearts. You would give us amazing abilities and talents, not used for our own glory, but to be used for your glory. And God, for those that are here today, for way too long, who have taken that oil, put it on the shelf. I pray, God, that you will give them the confidence 
to give them the confidence to know that, God, you were calling them not just to hold on to that oil, but to use it. And, Father, as we step out in faith this week, God, I want us as a church, as each one of us individually to be known as people who have big, big faith. God, we will not be shaken because you're working. We will not be shaken because you're transforming us. We will not be shaken because we trust in faith that you will meet us exactly where we're at. So God, help us to take that step, one decision, one day, one moment at a time, and grow us to have an amazing big faith. We love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, and all God's people said, amen.